One of the reasons doing public speaking presentations, et cetera, as a lawyer from a law firm is not that somebody is going to come up and introduce themselves or you're going to get a chance to shake their hand after the talk, although that might happen. If you present yourself in a way that generates confidence in the prospective client in the audience, you're going to get called. You're listening to Be That Lawyer, life-changing strategies and resources for growing a successful law practice. Each episode, your host, author, and lawyer coach, Steve Fretzen, will take a deeper dive, helping you grow your law practice in less time with greater results. Now, here's your host, Steve Fretzen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Be That Lawyer. I'm Steve Fretzen, as the announcer just mentioned, and I hope you're having a terrific day today. Thinking about marketing, business development, branding, ways to grow your law practice. Listen, it's, you know, you only got one chance at this thing, and I think you want to make every day work better and better. And in order to help you with that, Today for the show, I've got a really unique guest. This is different than any other type of guest I've had on in the sense that he's a lecturer, teacher at Stanford Law School. He's a lawyer himself. He's a writer. He's an advisor. Mr. Dave Johnson. How's it going, Dave? Hey, Steve. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well, man. (laughs) Good to have you. So how are things out in California? Very good. Uh, We just moved back. My wife and I just moved back here from Singapore a year and a half in Singapore. So we're getting settled back into home and uh, really enjoying it and hoping to get out of a, you know, out of a COVID lockdown soon. Yeah, (laughs) we're we're all, we're all getting there. Uh, Are people getting vaccinated pretty quickly out in California? Yeah, actually, I've already been through it and my wife's about to go get hers. Uh, There was a little hiccup with J&J, as you know, but we're in good shape here. Wonderful, wonderful. And if you wouldn't mind, just you've got uh, kind of a different, interesting background, if you wouldn't mind just sharing that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So my professional career began as a trial lawyer in downtown Miami, Florida in the 1980s. And although my advocacy professor in law school wanted me to go into criminal because I'd get trial experience there in Miami, I chose not to do that. So I stayed on the civil side entirely. I was lucky enough to work on both sides, plaintiffs and defense side of the of the world and get a lot of trial experience. I did 10 years in Miami, went back to school for an advanced degree at JSM, came back out west. I was born and raised in Seattle, came back to Stanford, did a degree and uh, went back to work in intellectual property in Silicon Valley in the, the 90s. Worked for Fenwick and West for quite some time, went in-house and probably four or five general counsel jobs in uh, mostly tech, just finished a four-year twist with the nonprofit and started teaching about 10 years ago at Stanford. I teach basic and advanced negotiation at the law school with some bleed over to business school. I get some business students in the class. And I also lecture at the design school at Stanford, more familiarly known as the D school, teaching a negotiation by design class over there. And um, I am starting, just finished an article that came out, the Singapore Academy of Law. I'm starting in on a book right now. And And that brings me to you. And and here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. And so let me ask this. I mean, and I don't know, you can speak to this because you're you're in it every day, but what type of training are you providing for lawyers in negotiation? And maybe you can, you know, where you are in Stanford and then across the country, what's being taught as it relates to helping them with negotiation? 
So, you know, I don't think a whole lot has changed with respect to teaching negotiation in the last decade or so. There have there are new books out, and occasionally there are some interesting books that take a new peek, uh, look in a, a new angle. There's one out of Harvard. Uh, Daniel Shapiro has a book on the emotion, the emotional component of being a negotiator, how to manage your emotions, how to manage the emotions of other people. I like I like that kind of fresh take. Dan Shapiro is not a, a negotiator. He's a psychologist, so he has a lot to say about emotion. But basically, there's two or three, I say, steps to teaching negotiation. There's the basic introductory aspect, and whether it's in school, like I teach, or it's in seminar or conferences, much the same rule set for lack of a better phrase, and and sort of the parameters and language that we use to understand what works in negotiation. And there is a real set of tools that work in negotiation, and there's a real set of do's and don'ts. And most any basic negotiation book you pick up will will guide you on that. Then there's the second level, what what I tend to drive towards uh, in my advanced class and also my design class, which is a little bit more sophisticated approach depending on those basics, that looks at uh, process design. Now, that's a big, fat, boring phrase. And so I don't want everybody to fall asleep the minute I say process design. But the difference between a straightforward negotiation to buy or sell a used car, et cetera, and a complex business negotiation, oftentimes the difference is who in the room or the figurative room of the negotiation manages the flow the process, the timing, the information release, the information gathering, and if more effectively can control how the negotiation conversation, the negotiation communication rolls forward. And it can be rolling forward for a period of three hours. A negotiation can go six weeks and be, you know, eight, 10, 12, three hour exchanges. But the timing of what happens in a negotiation and the management of things that happen that cannot necessarily be predicted or anticipated. That's what separates the average negotiator from somebody who's becoming what I would call a grandmaster at the negotiation. And believe me, I'll just add this. When I was a young lawyer, I got schooled by many a grandmaster. And, you know, I've made plenty of mistakes in, in negotiation in my years of practice and you know, one of the best ways to learn is actually to take a close look at how things went in your negotiation and see where you might have made a difference. Because it's such it's like a trial that way for those lawyers out there that have actually stood in a courtroom alone in front of a judge and jury with a witness on the stand and realized there are so many things going on live, unscripted, in real time that you have to be able to react to and react to correctly, or your client's interests may be damaged. That's the the center of the crucible. And in negotiation, it's the same thing. You have to be able to manage this process of unpredictability and work your way through it. And I apologize. I interrupted you, but I was was just curious. I'm I'm anxious to ask, which (laughs) is, uh, you know, you mentioned someone like the who, all right? So is that, for example, a mediator? Is that there's a person that is controlling the flow and then you have to figure out like how to negotiate with and around that person? Yeah, it's it's interesting. What I mean is the negotiator themselves being the person who is in who is 
controlling or trying to control or manage. Manage is probably the better word than control. As an aside, I had a conversation with a former partner who became a judge. And as a judge, she took the position that it's my courtroom. And any judge you talk to will tell you it's my courtroom. And I said to her, no, uh, you may think that, but I guarantee you that the lawyers on the floor in front of you believe it's their courtroom. And you have to take that mindset to believe that it's your courtroom. Of course, you respect the judge. And of course, you respect the judge's rules and rulings, et cetera. That goes without saying. But if you don't have the mindset that you are running the show in some way, shape or form, then guess what? The show is, be, is being run on you. It's one or the other. Either you're in control or somebody else is in control. Otherwise, it's chaos if nobody's in control. So best to be the person who has the mindset that I'm the one who is managing this. Now, when you get into a uh, negotiation with four or five really good negotiators, all of whom are struggling to manage the process, that's where it gets really interesting. It's a, li it's a little bit more like a chess match there. But now let me segue back. When there's a mediator involved, of course, the mediator is trying to control the process as well. But as an advocate, two, three, four lawyers advocating in a complex mediation, all of those lawyers are also trying to manage the process. And they see the mediator as a piece on the board that they are trying to manage as well. If you go into a mediation and you just sit down and say, okay, mediator, do your thing and let's see what happens, you're probably going to get less of a deal than you might otherwise be able to. So you almost have to game the system a little bit by being an active negotiator, being actively looking at everyone on the board as a player that you've got to, you know, not manipulate, but you've got to make right. sure that you're getting your fair shake. Right. And, you know, this isn't pejorative, derogatory or negative in any sense. You can manage some of the best negotiators I've ever watched and negotiators who can really manage a process are the nicest folks you'll ever meet. And they're gentle and calm and they don't talk a lot. They listen a lot, but they know when to push a lever or pull on a knob and make a shift in the flow of the negotiation, when to take a break, when to engage, when to become competitive, when to move over to a collaborative style, et cetera, et cetera. It comes with experience to be sure, but this is the sort of level of negotiation skill that you need to get to, I think, to really practice the art of law at its highest level. And everybody can get there, but there is some training that is very, very helpful in the process. And there are good books out there. One of them is titled 3D Negotiation by David Lax and Jim Sabinius, also out of Harvard. And they talk at length about the three dimensions of managing the negotiation. And the first two do not occur in the negotiation room. And so if you want to look at a book that talks to this subject, uh, that's a good place to start. But going back to your original question, additional courses, CLE, video trainings, seminars, et cetera, that speak to a more advanced level can really be beneficial. I did them myself before I started teaching, and uh, I found it made me a better negotiator as a lawyer on all facets, all fronts. Gotcha. Gotcha. So here's something interesting. I hope this isn't a curveball for you, but I'm just curious, you know, one of the most common things that I hear from lawyers, and again, I'm in the business development space, helping them grow law practices. And the most common thing I hear is, 
geez, they never taught me this in law school, right? So it's right. all the business skills, all the things, the marketing, the business, the sales, all, all the different words that that lawyers never needed to know, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that they now do. Are you tipping in or tapping in or touching on anything related to business development as you teach negotiation, or is it strictly legal negotiation and, and like we're talking about in the in the boardroom? Courtroom. No, I don't put that into my negotiation class uh, because I tend to have a blended class of lawyers and non-lawyers. Okay. And so I think it's unfair in my particular instance to try and teach specifically lawyer business uh, approaches. However, when I talk to young lawyers or when I was in a law firm managing young lawyers, that changes. Uh, I, I like to talk to young lawyers, first, second, third year associates about how to start building business and how to start working uh, towards building a practice, a book of business that they can take with themselves. Because although it's harder as an associate than as a partner in a law firm to build your book, you can still build the network that will segue into a book of business the, the minute you start practicing law, whether you're solo, even if you're in government or nonprofit, but specifically or if you're in a law firm, there are a lot of things a young lawyer can do to start building the network that then becomes a book of business. Uh, and it, it's just the it, it's unfortunate. But when I was in law firms, the the general rule was you don't even start think about thinking about marketing or building a client base until you are close to or actually becoming a partner. And that, in my view, that's too late. Yeah, that's there are some law firms that want to get that going early because they see value in building up their people. And I have to tell you, one of the lawyers I work with is at a mid-market firm and one of her seniors got everybody together, all the senior associates and said, don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. You all have work to do, crank out the hours. And she came back to me very upset about it. And so it's, it's, it's a, I think a lot of it's cultural. A lot of it is, is the mindset of the firm. What are they, you know, they're looking at the, they're looking at the numbers and the profits and, and all that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's, it's short-sighted and sad, but it's every firm is different and has different cultures. And I think this, the, you know, the stronger are going to survive and the weaker are going to, are going to get bought, you know, yeah. or, or they'll die out. But it makes sense if, if you think take the narrow view of what a law firm partner is doing, then it's in their best interests for their associates to spend all of their time working on their cases. Yeah. <laughs> that's how they make money yeah, is mean, building the pyramid, yeah, it's a, it's pyramid a, underneath them. Yeah, it's a brilliant so model. Tell. It's just not <laughs> it's just not gonna fly with millennials and, and others that actually, you know, care about you yeah. know, their careers and their balance yeah. and all that. So let me get into the weeds, if you would, for a sure. minute here. And so Clearly, you know, my show is about, you know, business development, growth, et cetera. And I'm just curious to hear if you've got a couple of thoughts or tips around negotiation for new business, negotiation, whether it's to get a meeting, negotiation, whether it's to, you know, lock up a client to identify what their needs are and how they're, you know, what, what's really motivating them to change or you're, but, but I'm giving ideas. You, you share your, your thoughts, a couple of things that might, you know, benefit my audience would be, would be wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So let me start with this idea that negotiation kind of has a, what I would say a, a small bandwidth and a large width scope meaning. The narrow is this more specific technical term of negotiation in the sense that we're going to negotiate a deal. It's, it's focused. It's, it's defined. The larger view is 
that most everything we do in business internally and externally, let's say internally in the firm and externally, is in some way, shape or form, plausibly a negotiation, but it's really communication with the, with the interest of either persuading someone or working collaboratively with someone to achieve a positive result. And so under the heading of that communicative aspect of negotiation, um, I would say that the, I've had a few interesting takeaways from when I left the law firm chair and the law firm lens of the legal world, and I moved over to the general counsel chair and the general counsel lens, which generally speaking, I would say is the, the client view of the legal world, meaning the law firm and services world. And, you know, we've all heard of the six degrees of separation, Kevin Bacon notion. I like to think in terms of three or four degrees of separation when it comes to uh, getting business on from the law firm side. Now, I happen to know Personally, and here's the hypo. I'm sitting in my uh, office chair thinking about trying to expand my network, expand my reach, or specifically get in touch with somebody who I think might be a prospect. So I think of who I know and can easily pick up the phone, send an email and say, do you know this person or do you know somebody who knows this person? And generally, I have found that within four degrees, so Myself, the people that I know well, the people that they know well, when you get to that third level, somebody at that third level may well actually be able to make a connection to that fourth level. And I'm going to say here, although I occasionally have looked at LinkedIn to see the, the, the tiering, and there's a reason they use that model, that tiering model of degrees, I rarely use LinkedIn for this purpose, and that's a personal choice. Uh, one of the reasons is if I go use LinkedIn uh, for uh, to sort of search for contacts, uh, I generally feel like I have to do it in a private window because I don't want to leave my my footprints laying around and have people, uh, you know, seeing that I've been nosing around. But within those four degrees of contacts. In a community, whether it be New York City, Silicon Valley, or, you know, Springfield, Illinois, within four degrees, there's likely somebody who has a way of reaching out to somebody that I'm interested in, in getting to. So one aspect of the communication slash negotiation slash persuasion is calling in the favor, usually of the second and third tier person. And one way that I, I like to think about when I was in the law firm, what I would do is just the first concentric circle around myself, I would just make regularly sure that people with whom I have a close relationship always were reminded that I'm looking to build my business, that they know what it is I do as a lawyer, whether they are lawyers or not. And that they can always, they always have permission, express permission to send a link of my bio, which is happens to be in my signature block, but also online bio, whether it's on the firm page or whatever, to anybody who they think that they might be interested in. So there's sort of a passive seed setting there. Then if I find out that that person is somebody, might know somebody in the space, let's say they work in the industry and they might know somebody who, and that's the industry that my target is in, then I can every now and then call them up and say, 
hey, you know, I've been looking for business. I see you're in this industry. Can you specifically see if you know somebody who could reach out to person D at the fourth level? And just if nothing else, just forward my bio. And as now I'm going to flip over to the GC side. I didn't realize it until I was on the GC side of the world and I had the job of hiring new lawyers, moving work from lawyer for lawyer to lawyer or law firm to law firm. I did not realize how much I would rely, depend on, and make judgments based on a lawyer's bio, photo, and description, self-description on their law firm website. It's a, a whether one agrees or disagrees that that's a, a good way to make a judgment. I find that I sifted the first layer of sifting that I did was always just by that way. I was I was looking for certain characteristics and also I was looking for a firm that had a certain scope. So one thing that I would say as a GC who shopped for lawyers, make sure your bio is perfect. Excuse me, but it sounds like it's the the proverbial book cover, right? I mean, if the book cover doesn't grab your attention and give you the headline or give you the, you know, it's the third edition or whatever it is you're looking for, you're going to move on to the next book. So that's yeah. that's where the importance of this bio photo, professional photo, maybe LinkedIn, you know, might be a thing too, because that's like an online resume of sorts, that those things have to be really impressive. They do. And I'll, t- I'll take your analogy one step further. Uh, it's the book cover and the preface or introduction. It's more than just the cover. I'm going to open the book. I'm going to I'm going to look at the site, but I'm going to really dig in uh, to the words you choose the, and the things you choose to say or not say uh, in the bio, how you position yourself. I expect a little bit of self-promotion, but too much self-promotion is for me um, likely to get me to move to the next person. But, and I might look at 10 or 15, uh, some of whom will be recommended by close friends or uh, colleagues of mine. Um, And the others will have just been from, uh, you know, searches for specific subject areas. And it may be that I'll go look at that bio based on something I saw in LinkedIn, but I'll almost always go to the firm website bio rather than read what's being done in LinkedIn. I don't know. That's just my, maybe I'm a dinosaur, but that's just my, my uh, preference. Well, so, I, want, I want to go right to Facebook and see who they're hanging out with. <laughs> you know, are they, are they, are they, I, at the, are they at the bar getting drunk or are they uh, doing uh, things with charity? Maybe that's something. Yeah, it is. And I, I laugh only because I I am somebody who gave up Facebook 12 years ago and have never allowed myself to uh, get pulled back in. You know, occasionally somebody will post a link to some text that I want to read, but they've posted it on Facebook. And I don't know if you know this, but if you're a if you're a never Facebooker like I am, um, and that's because I'm in the Valley and I don't care for Mr. Zuckerberg or Ms. Sandberg's method of doing business. It's a personal choice and I don't want to be critical, but it's a personal choice. Uh, if I go and click on a link for some text that's in Facebook, Facebook jumps down my throat <laughs> because yeah. they know, still know that I used to have an account 12 years ago. So I, I don't even go there, but that's, that is 
that's I'm sure I'm in the minority on that. I just that that's why I chuckled about that. Right. So, yeah, Facebook is a place to look too. But Dave, let me bring you back because this is something that lawyers struggle with. I mean, every day it's they want to get a meeting with a GC because they know or believe that they could add value to that company. And obviously they're looking for that business. There's obviously, you know, two for there. And so having their bio and having their photo and having all that up to snuff is important What's the next or more another layer down from there or even more important? Is it who introduces you to them? Is it uh, what that you have an actual need at the time? Who are you willing to take meetings with versus not? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, there's no easy answer to that. It is there, there is definitely something to who introduces you or your name, your information and your expertise into the GC's office. One good pathway to a GC is through the associate GCs. And uh, because there is an enormous amount of trust between a general counsel, the deputy general counsel, the senior uh, associate counsel, director level uh, associate general counsels, and the rest of the team. You know, a GC could have a team of four, could have a team of 40 or 400, but there's a level of trust there. And the good news is um, that the junior lawyers on a GC's team uh, tend to put themselves out there. They are either invited to go to panels and give talks, or they go to panels and listen to law firm people give talks uh, or industry people. And so one way to go meet them is in those uh, venues. Now, for the last year and a half, that's sort of been shut down, but we're going to go be, we're going to go back to uh, some live work, I'm sure, in the next six months or uh, uh, nine months. And getting to know the junior people uh, is a good pathway in. Uh, and most companies, will have bios of not just the GC or the senior people, but oftentimes bios of uh, the younger lawyers, not always, but sometimes. And then this is where LinkedIn can be a service. You can go in and search LinkedIn and find out every AGC uh, of a team of 400 at um, a major company is going to have their current job posted on LinkedIn. And so you can start looking for people who are working in the company there. Uh, so I would work, I would mine that space, uh, with some diligent research and then see if you can make a connection in, um, and maybe I undersell LinkedIn. I've, I've cold called people on occasion on LinkedIn and gotten responses. Um, well, let me, let but, me, let me, add, let me add to that, Dave, just cause yeah. I've been, I've been actually teaching LinkedIn for about 13 years before people yeah. even knew what it was. And I, yeah. I speak on it regularly and it's, it's possibly the best business development tool that's ever existed. Uh, if it's used right, if it's used properly and with intention. Yeah. And so there's a lot of people on there. There's some people that maybe comment on posts or just kind of like things or whatever. But if you're looking to get value from your content 
that you're publishing, if you're looking to get your name out there and build your brand and, and validate that you're an expert in something uh, without saying it. And then on top of that, all of the proactive things that you and I've been talking about already with getting inside connections and getting in the door in places that you never would have thought you could have gotten in because you didn't realize you had a connection there or you didn't realize there was an avenue. I mean, it's, it is the, the tool. So it, it, but that being said, it, it's not easy. Everything is hard. It's just easier than just trying to pull it out, you know, pull it out of thin air or just call around and ask people if they have an inroad at a company, uh, you know, because then it's just, you know, you're just throwing darts at, a, in, you know, at, at the ground. Um, yeah. You're going to hit, you're going to hit the ground, but you're not hitting what you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, let me just add to that, which yeah. is when I've, when I've made successful cold calls in LinkedIn, it's, it's, there's a little bit of a head fake involved, but I think everybody understands that. Uh, I don't go in and say, Hey, I see you work at such and such. Can you introduce me to so-and-so inside your company? It's, I see that, uh, I, I read your latest post, et cetera, et cetera. I see you're at AGC at, uh, at Apple, um, and ask a substantive question that is not related to your search for business. Uh, you know, so if you're a patent lawyer and you ping an AGC who's doing uh, patent applications at Apple, you might ask for just sort of a, a reality check on this, uh, this particular most recent patent ruling that came out, something like that. Can you just give me an informal two cents on on whether how this affects your business or affects technology generally, something that's substantive informational entices them uh, to share some of their expertise because everybody wants to talk about what they know well and let that evolve into a conversation, even if it takes a few weeks of back and forth before uh, before it turns towards maybe I can do something with your firm uh, and. The person on the other end, if they're savvy at all, will will read your question and look you up. Uh, so they're going to find out. And, and so if they engage the conversation, uh, that means they're not averse to the idea of having a conversation with an outside lawyer at XYZ firm who does this kind of work. And so, Dave, is that is the negotiation that you're teaching and that you've experienced in your career? Is it maybe less about you know uh, you want this for four, I want you to have this for two, and we negotiate to try to find a win-win at three? Is it more about then communication, reading people, and understanding you know maybe different inroads within those behaviors or within the uh, you know the the human condition versus you know, just flat out, like, you know, just negotiation in the, in the, in the common sense that we think about it. It's, it's what you are alluding to. It's, uh, communication, uh, a sophisticated communication. One okay. of the things I like to teach, uh, to students is word choice. And I learned this and any lawyer who's taken a lot of depositions or taken, uh, done a lot of trials knows uh, that word choice from witnesses uh, discloses a great deal. So here's the example that sometimes I use. Uh, when you were at the corner of the intersection, did the, blue, did the blue car run the red light or did the blue car have the green light? The witness could say, I saw the blue car run the red light. 
or I think the blue car read that ran the red light. I believe the blue car ran the red light. And they answer the question without thinking what the words are. They just pick a word. Well, you know what? There's a big difference between I saw, think, believe, or, or no. And the witness is telling you the degree of certainty that they have without even realizing the degree of certainty that they have. And so this is, you know, a savvy trial lawyer is going to suss this out. And in fact, most of them, if you get that answer, if you get believe, for example, in a deposition, you're going to lay in the weeds. You're going to use that on cross if you, if you happen to be doing a cross of this person. And hopefully on direct, you're going to coach your witness to be a little bit more affirmative in their identification. What's the point here? Word choice matters. And we have to be really conscious about word choice. Yeah. Can't just sort of it, negotiation communication is not a dinner table conversation. It is affirmatively not a free flowing stream of consciousness dinner table conversation. It is a structured, conscientious, uh, in, intellectual, sort of sophisticated conversation where your word choice matters and the other side's word choice matters and it gives you information. Well, I, uh, I would just, Dave, I would disagree and say that it is. I'm just trying to start a, a, a negotiation with you. Sorry. Sure. That, no, no, go ahead. No, I, I was joking. I was, I was oh, trying okay. to put a joke in there. It didn't go over at all. <laughs> not no, that we, I mean, now that we have an audience to laugh at it, but uh, you know, I was just trying to lighten things up, but it's, I get, I, it. I get it. This is, this is heavy stuff. This is academic stuff. And it's, are there are things that, you know, that can be worked on in a classroom setting that maybe aren't appropriate for three couples at a dinner, at a dinner table. Yeah. I, and, and I'm not trying to, to let the, I'm not, I'm not trying to make this sound like it's an academic undertaking. Okay. The, the idea here is that the communication that I'm having when I am trying to make inroads to get in touch with the right person, a decision maker who can bring business to my firm, or I can deliver services to their firm, the kind of decisions we make about what to talk about in developing that conversation, what to talk about when and how is is something that is warrants a lot of planning, a lot of strategy, because it will get you down the road if you're patient and you're careful. It takes time to build trust. It takes some reciprocity to build trust. And whether you're doing it in LinkedIn, whether you're doing it by email, or whether you're doing it by friends, referring friends, referring colleagues, it's still a very careful process. And Ultimately, you get there. But one of the things I can say as a general counsel, when a new lawyer is put in front of me by recommendation from one of my associates or by recommendation of a personal friend or by recommendation of a lawyer at firm X who doesn't do practice Y. And so I ask for somebody in the Y space when that person when that name is put in front of me, I make some decisions based on how aggressive or non-aggressive they are in pushing me to give them business. You know, the, one of the first interviews with well, the first GC job I had, I interviewed maybe 35 or 40 people in this dot-com fast growth company. And I had it narrowed down to two or three candidates. I remember this distinctly. And the one candidate who had the best credentials, the best resume, who came from the hotshot firm of the century, Wilson Sonsini, sat down and tried to bulldoze me into giving him the job. And I instantly knew I wasn't giving it to him because he tried to bulldoze me. If he'd have been patient, 
and just talked about sports or something, he would have gotten the job. Now, yeah. that's just an example of what I'm, I mean by letting the conversation and the communication play. And that's, again, maybe this is a little bit personal on my part. I just well, don't like to be sold. But I don't think there are too many people, and I deal with this every day, that geez, I just can't wait to get sold today. I hope somebody's going to pressure me into something because I, <laughs> you know, I'm bored with life. I mean, really that's, you know, the, even back in the eighties when that was the only th way to do things, people probably didn't like it so much today. It's, yeah. it's considered, yeah. you know, terribly offensive. So yeah. I think, you know, what I'm teaching every day, and this is how we're going to maybe wrap things up in a nutshell is, you know, I'm teaching skills around relationship building, listening, understanding, empathy, asking great questions, qualifying, identifying if there's a fit versus pitching, presenting, convincing, which is very old school, yet that's what a lot of attorneys are still doing because they haven't either learned or really come to grips with the idea that a new model, you know, is taken over. And it's not only great for both parties because we're looking for a fit and we're looking for a collaboration that's going to be meaningful, but it takes away all of that angst that we feel about being sold to. So I think yeah. a lot of the things that you covered today, whether we call it negotiation, whether we call it communication, whether we call it, you know, the human experience, it's much, very much in line with what I think, you know, I'm dealing with every day. And I, I just want to tell you, I appreciate your being on the show, sharing your expertise, your intellect with us. I know you don't have anything to really promote. You've got a book you're working on, but if people have questions on negotiation or people want to learn more about how negotiation plays out in law, how would they get in touch with you? Email's the best way. My email address is on my bio, Stanford faculty directory. You just search my name, Dave Johnson, Stanford, you'll find it. Just let me add that I'm really, really pleased to hear the description you just provided, what you could call the new school of teaching empathy as a central component. It's what we teach at the D school every single day. It's the designer's mindset. It starts with empathy. And so I want to just hammer that word here. And I'm glad to hear you say it, say it and use it. It is the way that you reach people. You know, I had on my notes, and I'll close with this, that one of the ways that one of the reasons doing public speaking presentations, et cetera, as a lawyer from a law firm is not that somebody is going to come up and introduce themselves or you're going to get a chance to shake their hand after the talk, although that might happen. If you present yourself in a way that generates confidence in the prospective client in the audience you're going to get called. And I've called plenty of lawyers that I've watched from afar based solely on that person gives me confidence in the way they handle themselves, the way they speak authoritatively. They speak with kindness. They speak with empathy. They tell a personal story about themselves. Uh, they don't thump their chest, that sort of thing. That tells me a whole lot more about that person as a potential addition to my team than any amount of accolades that might be listed on their website. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for being my guest and, and, uh, and my helping pleasure. out my people. Yeah, so oh. yeah, it's been great. 
And uh, listen, everybody, just want to thank you for spending some time with Mr. Dave Johnson and myself today. And again, the goal is to get a couple of good takeaways, some things that you can take back to the office or take back and, you know, look, you know, whether it's trying to get some appointments with some new general counsels, be a better communicator, negotiator, you know, that's all good stuff and all things that you need to continue to sharpen. So appreciate your time. And listen, the idea here is always to be that lawyer, someone who's confident, organized and a skilled rainmaker. Take care, everybody. Be safe. Be well. Thanks for listening to Be That Lawyer, life-changing strategies and resources for growing a successful law practice. Visit Steve's website, fretson.com, for additional information and to stay up to date on the latest legal business development and marketing trends. For more information and important links about today's episode, check out today's show notes.